Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. KYW Original Podcasts. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the sad countdown is on. Hanami University Hospital is slated to close its doors in a matter of weeks. But it's not alone. Unfortunately, the number of hospitals go bankrupt in a serial fashion. This has woken up a lot of people to realize that this could happen again. The real-world human impact. Those wait times are going to increase. It's going to jam up EMS. The economics behind safety net hospital closures. Then he's made headlines in an effort to get drugs and guns off the streets. We can not only solve crimes, we can stop them from happening in the first place. Pennsylvania's Attorney General discusses his recent initiatives to hit crime at the source. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the closure of Hanuman University Hospital. Last month, the owner announced that the 496-bed facility that serves vulnerable Philadelphia communities would be closing its doors. That decision sparked protests and lawsuits. Since then, the Pennsylvania Health Department has approved a wind-down schedule, and the hospital will officially close for good on September 6th. But they are not alone. 21 hospitals have closed in the United States in 2018, and more could come. So what are the economics behind these closures, and what can we do to stop it? With me to discuss this flashpoint is Robert Burns. He's a University of Pennsylvania professor who specializes in healthcare management. We also have in the studio Patrick Clancy, who is head of Philadelphia Works, the Workforce Development Board for the City of Philadelphia. And finally, we have Shanna Hobson. She's a trauma nurse at Hahnemann University Hospital. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Nice to be here. Shanna, I want to start with you. How are things in the hospital, and where do you stand as of today? Uh, it's sad and quiet in the hospital. Um, I think there's maybe one or zero admitted patients at this point. Um, I would think it's probably empty. The last time I worked, there were only three admitted patients. Um, so I work in the ER, so we're open and we're taking walk-ins, but we don't see any EMS coming at all, us sitting around mostly. And so how are you feeling about this at this point now that the actual closing date, the final closing date has been announced? It's very sad. We all loved working there. We loved taking care of our patient population. Um, None of us wanted to leave. We had planned to stay there indefinitely. So everyone's, it's very, everyone's devastated. Patrick, I'm going to jump over to you because this week the city of Philadelphia stepped up, Philadelphia Works. What did you guys do this week? On July 25th, we hosted a huge job fair for all the Hahnemann employees who are looking to make a transition. So for really, it was, for us, it was a day of hope, right, to help the Hahnemann employees realize that many, many, many employers want them. We had over 200 employers at the event. We had close to 800 employees attend. So we feel like we are trying to make, you know, what is a really bad, sad situation, something positive, which is give people options. In this career field of healthcare, particularly nurses, are, are really highly marketable. Um, so we feel like our, our strategy as a city workforce board is to put resources in place so people can make those decisions and help them along the way, realizing that it's very frustrating and very depressing. But yesterday was a day of hope for us. Yeah, day of hope. And I had a chance to check that out. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, Robert, this is a much bigger issue. Um, and, and could you explain um, what the bigger issue is here with this closure of Hahnemann as an example? First up. You know, I, I very much empathize with what Shanna said. I have a profound respect for what the frontline clinicians do. And I also appreciate what Patrick's doing because these are the frontline workers in healthcare and trying to, you know, make sure we, we keep those kind of jobs and we can allocate those people to other institutions that have perhaps have personnel needs. These are two very important things. And so I think 
yes, we're talking about the bankruptcy and the closure of a, a venerable, you know, Philadelphia institution. But at the end of the day, healthcare is provided to individual patients by individual doctors, nurses, mm-hmm. and teams of doctors and nurses. We always have to remember that because that's the bottom line for all of these stories. But I want you to kind of talk about this, the economics of it, because, I mean, this this happened quickly for a lot of folks outside of the hospital. They didn't see it coming and it was a shock to people. Why is a hospital like Hahnemann so vulnerable to this type of closure? First off, it's in the middle of the city and it's treating the most vulnerable patients. Hahnemann was one of four major academic medical centers in the city. And perhaps for a city of the size of Philadelphia, we had too many academic medical centers and too many beds in those academic medical centers to fill. And then secondly, Hahnemann seeing a disproportionate share of indigent patients. They were number three in seeing those patients in the market. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, break even when you're treating that large of a share of patients and you don't have enough commercially insured patients to balance that out. Yeah, because the, you know, and I want to, we're going to come back to that issue for you to dig in a little bit more of what that actually means uh, as far as like Hahnemann making money, because this is a business. But Shanna, you were on the front lines. Was there any indication inside the hospital that there were financial issues and that it was getting bigger to the tipping point where closure was coming way before the announcement came? I mean, we've, I've worked there for six years. We've, it's always been and financial trouble. We know the kind of patients that we serve, and they're not the high reimbursement patients. So we knew that we were sort of always struggling. Um, we did not expect this to happen as quickly as it did, especially when um, AAHS, now PAHS, took over. They made a lot of promises, said, we're going to turn this around. We've done this before. We're going to make this, you know, we're going to dump money into here. We're going to renovate, and we're going to make some money. We're going to turn this place around, and that just didn't happen. And so you, I mean, but you were there and the, you kind of heard the rumors, but you, you all kept working. Mm-hmm. And then when you got the announcement, were you as shocked as the public was? Yes. I, I remember we sort of discussed like, oh, could they close this place down? And we all thought, there's no way the city is going to let this place close down. Jefferson doesn't want these patients. Penn doesn't want these patients. These are like Hahnemann patients. It's just too many of them right in the center of the city, a trauma center. We're the easiest trauma center to get to. You just come right off 76. Jefferson's much harder to get to and in and out of for EMS. We're like, they can't shut us down. And yeah. Boom. There <laughs> Here you we go. are a few weeks later and yeah. it's empty. And so when you look at dispersing roughly 3,000 folks, 2,400, I understand, yeah. are still looking for jobs and work. Where are you where are you looking to disperse them? All of them are so used to coming right downtown. Yeah, I mean, so for us, it's about looking at the regional economy because and I think one of the challenges I think the workers will face is they're going to have to probably have a longer commute. I mean, I think the competition's really hard at a hospital right now, particularly for nurses who particularly don't have the BSN. May, they may have the RN with the associate's degree, which most hospitals now are in magnet status, which is that sort of high level credential and there's a certain percentage of BSN nurses you have to have. So if you worked at Hahnemann for many years and you never got the BSN, this could be a little bit of a challenge because you may have to go into other sort of, in, not industries, but you may have to go into long-term care or go into other fields other than just a hospital. Which may make less money for some people and things like that. Yeah. I mean, and our challenge is that, you know, the benefit package and, you know, just the culture of the hospital was really unique and people loved it. I mean, so for us, how you get laid off is really, really important because if it's if it comes as such a shock and a stunned and you're angry, it's hard to make that transition for, you know, in these short runs. Uh, but what we try to encourage people are, is that we know that there's many options uh, and explore all the options. We also have money available for retraining for people that need to get that additional certification. Yeah. So for us, it's trying to meet people where they're at and hopefully uh, they'll transition. Yeah. And, and so, uh, Robert, I want to kind of go back to what we were talking about, because we we're talking about this transition. A lot of issues you're going to see people disperse all over the region. And you mentioned that um, Hahnemann was just in a location where there was a lot of competition and they had a large number of low income uh, patients uh, with low levels of reimbursement. Could you talk about how that impacts the hospital's bottom line? The hospital's typically lose money on Medicare and Medicaid patients. And in Hahnemann's case, 
They may not have even had Medicaid. Maybe they're just uninsured. So in order to break even, you're going to need to have a group of patients who are commercially insured who pay more than 100% of the cost of care. And so the way hospitals survive is they have to have a, what we call a good patient mix, a mix of commercially insured patients to counterbalance Medicare, Medicaid, and uninsured patients. And by virtue of Hahnemann's physical location in the city and looking at the collar communities around that hospital, they were disadvantaged just because they were the closest hospital to several neighborhoods that had a large share of patients who either were Medicaid, low income, or uninsured. So they were a victim of their physical location to some extent, but they were, as I said, they were also a victim of the competition in the city for the commercially insured patients who may have preferred to go to Jefferson or to Penn rather than go to Hahnemann. And so what will happen to a lot of those patients? You know, Shannon, when you think about all the emergency room services have been shutting down, there was a woman who was hit right outside of Hahnemann and had to be escorted to a hospital farther away when she could have gotten service right Mm -hmm. there. Well, a lot of our patients use the emergency room as sort of their entry point into the healthcare system, whether it's because they don't have a primary or that's just what they do. They're going to go to other emergency rooms. They'll go to Jefferson. They'll go to Temple. They'll go to to Penn, but with us being shut down, at least our emergency room being shut down, those wait times are going to increase. It's going to jam up EMS, who's going to be waiting longer to offload patients at these facilities. So you're going to wait longer for an ambulance. You're going to wait longer once you get to an emergency room. It's going to definitely have a probably significant effect on the hospitals right around us. And are any of these surrounding hospitals sort of absorbing some of the Hahnemann folks? Yeah. So, you know, Temple University has hired a substantial number of nurses. Uh, We know Mainline Health has hired a a substantial number of nurses. And I would say before our job fair, a lot of employers sort of got in, right? I'm sure, Shannon, you were probably highly marketable because you had that high skill level. So a lot of employers, as much as they attended our job fair yesterday, they're very smart. They know that if they got into Hahnemann first, they were going to get the best of the best early on, and which is what happened. So we're excited. You know, we love when people make the transitions. I think one of the happier moments in yesterday's job fair was a, a, a doctor got hired on the spot. Uh, Robert, people talk about this hospital with such love, but at the end of the day, love doesn't buy supplies. The love doesn't pay salaries. The love doesn't make the repairs that are necessary on the hospital itself. What could structurally change? What do hospitals like Hahnemann need to do to stay in the black so that they can keep their doors open. Hospitals in the last 20 years have banded together into systems to try to stabilize themselves and spread the wealth around a little bit. There's, there's more financial security and stability if you're in a larger system. But Hahnemann would be normally considered as the, you know, the keystone to a system because you, you, usually your large academic medical centers, your large teaching hospitals are the are the are the uh, the the foundation for these hospital systems. But in Hahnemann's case, they were a weak link. And I I don't mean that in any disparaging way. Hahnemann's problems go back 25 years or more. You know, they they were acquired by the Allegheny system in Pittsburgh in 1993. Allegheny couldn't get them to work, even though they sort of merged operations with MCP Hospital and its medical school, which also closed. And then that was taken over by Tenet. Tenet tried to run it for 18, 20 years. They couldn't make it work. What we have in Philadelphia, unfortunately, is a, a number of hospitals that go bankrupt on a serial fashion just because they're in challenging neighborhoods with challenging patient mixes. And there's not a whole lot we can do about that except continue to prop them up using various uh, financial uh, remedies and bailouts, which is what Philadelphia has done and what other cities have done, too. But at some point, it's less able, you're less able to do that. And with the, sort of the cutbacks in Medicare and Medicaid and the low rate increases that hospitals are getting from the public insurance programs, it becomes less and less tenable to try to do that. Yeah, and quick follow-up to you, uh, Robert. Um, your mayor mentioned something yesterday about uh, hospitals like this need to be nonprofits and not for-profits. Any thoughts on that? I don't think, well, the, the research evidence shows that for-profit and non-profit hospitals run basically the same way. Uh, they provide about roughly the same level of indigent care. The only difference between the for-profit and non-profit hospitals, and I don't, this isn't meant as disparaging either, because what the evidence shows is that the for-profit hospitals are a little bit better at charging for ancillary services. 
other than that, you know, the same yeah. nurses and doctors work in both institutions. I've actually worked in both types of institutions, uh, and there's a dime's worth of difference between the two. I don't think that's the place to look. I think you need to look at sort of patient mix and then the kind of strategies these hospitals follow to try to uh, maximize the number of commercially insured patients they get and to offer the things that the community needs and wants and is willing to pay for. And so, Shannon, when you hear all these numbers, things, I mean, you're on the front lines providing the the actual care. And then tell me what it felt like to have this rally, because there was so much noise around this. I mean, Bernie Sanders showed up. I mean, there, this, there was so much spotlight, and yet the result was exactly what it is. We were really um, encouraged by the show of support from Bernie Sanders, but also the community, doctors, nurses, ancillary staff, the whole hospital really came together. So that was, you know, our patients were there, our, you know, just people who live in the area were there. So it was very encouraging. But I would like to say, if I could respond, I've worked in for-profit and not-for-profit. And I would say as an employee, there is a difference. I know at Hahnemann, I worked there when Tenant was there and then when AHS took over. And from an employee standpoint, it felt sort of predatory, right? They're here to make money. They're not putting money back into the building. It felt to us as employees at Tenant just tried to put just the absolute bare minimum in, bare minimum staff, bare minimum equipment, you know, cheapest EMOR system, everything, um, just to get as much money as they could out of it. I mean, there's no doubt that tenant let that building fall into complete disrepair. And then AHS took over and I think it was predatory in nature. I think they, they saw something that they could flip and So yeah. that is that how employees felt from the very beginning of this? I think at the beginning we were hopeful. Nobody liked tenant. Nobody who worked there thought tenant was a good company. Uh, and so when when Joel Friedman came in and took over and made a lot of promises, we were really hopeful that we could finally turn this place around and you know, have it reach its full potential. But very quickly, we just saw that things weren't really making a whole lot of sense, the way he was spending money and what he chose to focus on. They had lower negotiated reimbursement rates with the insurance companies than, say, Jeff or Penn. There would be, a lot of the claims would be denied and they wouldn't follow up on it. So there was a lot of money left on the table. They yeah. just, they did not want the place to succeed. And so, Patrick, I talked to a lot of folks as they were leaving. Yeah. Uh, they did feel some sense of hope. You mentioned the, the doctors and the nurses getting picked up, but there's a lot of folks outside of that. Are you concerned about the non-technical folks? Oh, and there are quite a few of those. Absolutely. So we're going to actually be focusing in that area. So we actually have a transition center set up at District 1199C, Training and Upgrade Fund. Because about 800 of the workers who are entry to mid-level workers are part of that union. And, and they're the ones that I think that are most scared, right? They, they have gotten to really love their job. Uh, their compensation has grown well. Their benefit package is pretty good. Uh, and I think that's the anxiety, right? So that's the group that we're going to be spending a lot of time with. As I told everybody yesterday, that was just the beginning of our services. This wasn't was, – this was not and a one-and-done. And these are the who, which folks, like the, the people the, in the – Cleaning, the techs. The dietary, uh, the CNAs, uh, individuals that, you know, because of the collective bargaining agreement did well. Um, and I think there's an anxiety about going to other facilities that maybe don't have a collective bargaining agreement. But for us, it was yesterday was the beginning, right? So we're not, we, we're not coming in just doing one big event and leaving. Our goal is to figure out how to get individuals sort of calm, hopeful, uh, and then look at transitions. Yeah. Yeah, and you you hear all this. I mean, this is the human impact when we talk to when we talk to Shannon, when we talk to Patrick, and so Robert. Um, what will it take? What type of political uh, momentum do we need in this city, in this country, to really kind of shift the conversation and the focus on this, so that much needed hospitals that serve very vulnerable uh, communities don't become victim to closure. That's going to be a tough issue going forward. Uh, one reason is, as I've mentioned before, the, the trend is for reduced uh, federal and state payments to these hospitals in, in the form of Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement. Secondly, um, we're facing huge federal budget pressures right now. And, you know, and the Congress is about to pass some budget measure which increases the debt and things like that. But everybody's beginning to realize that it's the, the entitlement programs like Medicare and Medicaid that are, are driving a lot of the federal spending, and that's going to come under scrutiny. And if Congress ever addresses that, that's going to impose further cuts on the health care system. We're going to have to rethink how we provide safety net care. If Hahnemann ended up being a safety net provider, 
we may need to re- rethink and perhaps repurpose some of these institutions that are doing safety net care from higher cost to lower cost settings. And that's not a very popular thing to say, because then you're saying, well, you're going to exclude access to, you know, higher end tertiary quaternary services to the lower income population. But we may need to redistribute the population seeking tertiary and quaternary services like Hahnemann, Penn, Jefferson, Temple, and redistribute that population, even though it requires people traveling a little bit more, and then figuring out maybe we ought to be providing more primary and basic basic secondary services to that lower income population in that area. So it's basically a regionalization of services which is an idea that's been out there for 50, 60 years, but it's very difficult politically to enact. Because it feels like there needs to be some kind of structural change. But Shannon, when you hear about this kind of stuff, is there a fear that pops into your head? Yeah, you worry about where these people are going to get care. They rely on the safety net hospitals to take care of these patients, so they don't have to, to worry about their reimbursement rates for these patients who have government insurance or no insurance. Um, and so you wonder that uh, you worry that a lot of patients are going to fall through the crack. We saw a lot of psych patients, patients who just can't really take care of themselves, uh, who don't take care of themselves. So, I mean, the, the idea of creating better sort of regionalization, you know, having more primary, you know, community-based services is, is great. But a lot of people just know to come to the emergency room and a lot of them chose Hahnemann. You know, and I would say from a workforce perspective, we're also worried by that. So we know that individuals in those high poverty areas need to go to work. However, if they don't get the appropriate services to to, to take care of themselves, they're not going to be able to go to work. So as much as we really are, you know, we're, our heart goes out for all the Hahnemann employees, we also are cognizant that the community itself is losing a critical piece of getting them back to work, which is stabilizing their health. So that's something else that we're – we're, we're going to be looking at and figuring out, like, what can we do differently? And I just want to ask you one final question before we, we wrap this up. I mean, when you guys hear the, the, the phrase Medicaid for all, Medicare for all, you know, quick response. What is that? What's your reaction? Robert, I'll start with you. What, what is your reaction when you hear that? Several. One is um, the cost that might be associated with that. Secondly, it's disruptive to half of the um, American population that's got private insurance. And so there are variations on Medicare for all. But if you make it mandatory, then you're basically telling 160, 170 million people you can't have your health insurance anymore. You know, I think that it's a non-starter politically, let alone what it might cost. Yeah. And when you hear that, does it make you think more hospitals like Hahnemann would suffer? Well, if Medicare for all is when every hospital, not just Hahnemann, is going to be subject to, you know, federal reimbursement, and we've seen over time that the federal government, it's a, it's a one-sided negotiation deal. You yeah. don't negotiate with Medicare. They basically just stipulate, here are the rates you're getting. I bet most hospitals would be fearful of the Medicare for All. From a healthcare provider standpoint, I find Medicare for All uh, encouraging. There's a lot of, obviously, serving a, a low-income or, or uninsured uh, population. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't have access to primary care. Uh, to those services outside of the hospital and the emergency room, which tend to be quite expensive in general. And so if everyone has insurance and everyone or more people can have access to these primary cares, you can nip a lot of health problems in the bud before they come to the emergency room very, very sick and require a very expensive course of treatment. So I think in like a sort of very long-term perspective that you will see the cost of care go down because people aren't utilizing the healthcare system in a very expensive way. Yeah, and I won't throw that to you unless you have a comment. Patrick. Yeah, I mean, I would just say for us, you know, obviously we don't un- we don't understand the cost of it all, but we would we would really champion you know coverage for everybody only because we know that's a critical part of people's you yeah. know maintaining uh, a healthy lifestyle. Wonderful. And so with that, because this is flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Is there a bright side to this closure? And if not, what can we charge folks to do to help? turn the tide to save our hospitals and the jobs that come along with it. And Patrick, we'll start with you and we'll end with Robert. Great. The the bright side is the response from the community and the response from the employer community and the response from organizations to really want to help people, to really care about the transition. So the bright spot is this has woken up a lot of people to realize that this could happen again, but they are really impassionate on, on providing good services at Philadelphia Works, we're, we're focused in on trying to make sure that happens. I think it's great how uh, the communities come together, and but I hope it raises uh, awareness of how 
vulnerable some hospitals can be and how much they're needed in the city and that hospitals should be sustainable, but perhaps profit shouldn't be the primary motivation. And last word, Robert. There are not too many uh, bright rays of hope from the closing. I think we've identified a number of the negative ones, including what's happening to all the medical students and residents who are, who are at uh, Hahnemann as well. We haven't even talked about them. Uh, if there was one ray of hope, it's more cold, cold-hearted a little bit, at least from a, you know, a market and economic standpoint. There's, there probably needed to be a shakeout in terms of the number of academic medical centers in the city. Compared to any other city our size, we have more of these things. And this is, this is unfortunately, the uh, invisible hand of the market perhaps working. All right. And with that, I want to say thank you to Robert Burns. Thank you to Patrick Clancy. And thank you to Shanna Hobson for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, I talk drugs and guns with Pennsylvania's Attorney General. This is my top priority. His new initiative designed to save lives, plus his thoughts on sharing gun jurisdiction with Philly's DA. We'll be right back. When we're out of time to give you the backstory, there's Scroll Down, the new podcast from KYW. Quality pre-K programs, not just ones that provide daycare. Case is, is three years old now, but we have not forgotten. And at the very end, I gave her a hug. I was in tears, and she whispered in my ear, everything I told you, it was a thousand times worse. What you didn't hear on air, from the KYW team ready to tell all. Search Scroll Down on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets folks in Pennsylvania hot under the collar, drugs and guns. Well, that has been the focus of the Commonwealth's chief prosecutor, Attorney General Josh Shapiro. He's been burning up the headlines across the Commonwealth, announcing drug busts, lawsuit settlements, and new initiatives designed to get drugs and guns off the streets. We are here in his Philadelphia office. Mr. Shapiro, welcome to Flashpoint. Good to be on with you. Thank you for having me. So you've been busy. And I I just want to first start by saying that drugs and guns, big deal in Philly. Big deal. It is a big deal. People's public safety is my top priority. Mm -hmm. And I hear it when I walk the streets of Philadelphia um, nearly every day. Folks want to come over to me and tell me about the concerns they have in their neighborhood. Look, I think it's incumbent upon us in law enforcement to make sure people are safe uh, and to do so in a way that is respectful of people's rights, their rights uh, afforded to them under our Constitution, and to ensure that every single day we are fighting to get these poisons out of their communities, Mm -hmm. to get these guns off their streets, to make sure the mom that I met not too long ago in Kensington, is able to walk her kid to school without stepping on syringes, without worrying about getting shot. And this is my highest priority every single day. And these guns, because we've seen this uptick in deaths here in Philadelphia, homicides, most are by gun. Where do these illegal guns come from? Typically, these guns make their way into the hands of criminals um, through a process called straw purchases. And this mm-hmm. is part of a new initiative that I launched not too long ago called Track and Trace, which yeah. we'll get into. But oftentimes you'll have someone who's a prohibited buyer, someone who's a felon, for example, who can't go to the gun store and buy a gun because our laws won't allow a criminal to buy a gun. But they will have someone go in and straw purchase it for them. They'll have someone go in who is a legal purchaser, buy the gun, yeah. and then sell it or give it illegally to that criminal. Sadly, about 80% of straw purchasers are women. And this is not a shot at these women. A lot of times they're stuck in abusive relationships. They're stuck in situations where they lack empowerment. And so part of what we're trying to do with this new track and trace initiative is to empower these women to understand, A, it's against the law to straw purchase. B, they don't have to, that there are are resources out Mm -hmm. there to protect them, to help them, to shield them. Um, And through a peer-to-peer counseling effort, Working um, with Mothers in Charge, this great organization in Philadelphia, working with Operation Lipstick, a great organization out of Boston, we're empowering women to break this dangerous cycle of straw purchases. We open through our gun violence task force 25 straw purchase investigations each month. This is mm-hmm. a serious problem. And when these guns get in the hands of criminals, they're being used to shoot people in our communities. They're being used to ruin lives and destroy families. And this is one part, one part of our many efforts to try and combat gun violence in the city of Philadelphia. In the past, we've seen women be severely prosecuted, but you're you're taking a different approach through exactly. education. Explain why. Exactly. I want to educate women about the fact that 
straw purchases are illegal. And while they often feel that they're in a situation where they can't say no or they can't refuse, by empowering them through peer-to-peer counseling, through peer-to-peer education, in the beauty salons and in community centers and in places throughout Philadelphia where this program is going to operate, we think we can help break that cycle. And so I choose to approach this from the standpoint of empowering women, educating them, working with them to break this cycle, as opposed to simply going out and making these arrests. Look, Sometimes it's important to make these arrests. Sometimes it's important that that be the lead component of our strategy. But I think you have to have a smart on crime strategy, a smart approach, an approach that deals with empowerment and education. And that's what we're doing here in the Office of Attorney General through our Track and Trace initiative. Explain Track and Trace because you guys use data to kind of go down the the chain, I guess, from a gun, from where you get it to where it came from. Right. So, Sherry, here's the thing. Everybody always says, enforce the laws on the books, right? Yeah. Well, here in Pennsylvania, we have a law that simply says if a gun was used in a crime, if it is now a crime gun, that information needs to be put into a law enforcement database and then shared with other law enforcement officials. Because we know a small number of guns are used in a large number of crimes that if we enforce this law, and get this information into mm-hmm. the database, we can not only solve crimes, we can stop them from happening in the first place. So that's the first component of track and trace, utilizing this law enforcement database. Here's the second key part of it. If you go buy a gun from a retailer, you fill out a piece of paper uh, at that point of sale. That's required under state law today. The problem is when you fill out that paperwork, and it gets mailed to the state Mm -hmm. police, and then there's a backlog of paperwork, and then the state police has to manually type everything in. That slows down law enforcement's ability to solve crimes. It slows down law enforcement's ability to track these guns that oftentimes Mm -hmm. fall into the hands of the wrong people. And so we're partnering up with retailers, including Dick's Sporting Goods, one of the biggest retailers in Pennsylvania. They're based in Western Pennsylvania. To make that point of sale transaction digital, right, where you do it online as opposed to filling out that paperwork. Just enforcing those two laws combined with the education component that we talked about before, empowering women to, to not be involved in these straw purchases, that's going to help save lives. That's going to help reduce gun violence. And it's using a smart on crime approach to dealing with these problems. And we think that that's a really important thing that's needed, not just here in Philadelphia, but all across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I just went to a gun violence um, hearing yesterday. And one of the things um, Commissioner uh, Richard Ross talked about was stolen guns. He said that was one of their biggest problems, that it's no duty to report, really. Just your thought on the issue of stolen guns and how they impact, you know, this access to guns committed in crime. Well, Commissioner Ross is right. um, And he and I work very closely together Mm -hmm. on these initiatives. And I have to, by the way, commend the Philadelphia uh, Police Department for participating in this crime gun database initiative. Mm -hmm. They're participating by putting their crime guns in and by sharing that information across the board. Because we know these guns can travel, travel from a rural hunting cabin in Western PA Mm -hmm. to the streets of Philadelphia. But as it relates to safe storage, that's another key component of our education campaign through Track and Trace, which is to let people know, especially law-abiding citizens know, you got to lock up your guns. You got to keep them away from kids, certainly. But we also know that NRA members, for example, are being targeted by thieves because they know that there are guns in their homes. Those guns are being stolen, and then they're being used for crime here in the city of Philadelphia and across Pennsylvania. And so just people exercising common sense, locking up their guns, the public can be a part of our initiatives to save lives, and they have an important role to play. Yeah, I had no idea that people specifically targeted NRA, just members, because you know they have one. We we know that um, there are criminals who will look at a home and look for an NRA sticker on the window Mm -hmm. or look for an NRA license plate or an NRA decal on the car and know that that's an NRA home and there's a good chance there's a gun in there. And if it's not locked up, they're, they're stolen. And by the way, I'm not attacking or criticizing the gun owners. They have a legal right to own these guns. Because mm-hmm. you we're know just they're, asking, they're clutching the guns right now. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're asking them to be part of the solution. And I will tell you that the, the gun owners I talk to, the law-abiding gun owners I talk to, they don't want to see this these shootings in Philadelphia. They don't want to see these shootings in Reading and Pottstown and Hazleton and Norristown. They want to put an end to it, and they want to be a part of the solution, and I thank them for that. Yeah. Got to ask you, um, I know you've tweeted about this. This has been an issue here in Philly. I got calls about it on my way out to Mexico to go on vacation. But 
you were given concurrent power with our DA to help tackle the issue of gun violence. Your position on that? People were people were a little nervous. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really a question for the legislature. I didn't ask for this authority. I don't need this authority. As mm-hmm. you referenced in your opening here, we've had a number of busts. Yep. We've got a lot of jurisdiction in the city of Philadelphia. I don't need any more jurisdiction. Uh, and I frankly said that jurisdiction wasn't particularly helpful. Our gun violence task force, which is a joint operation between the Office of Attorney General and the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, works well to try and keep people safe. And that's one component of the work I do in the city of Philadelphia. And we're going to continue working collaboratively with the district attorney's office. Wonderful. Um, so there's no loss of power to D.A. Krasner, because I felt like that w- there was a misunderstanding. Yeah, I, I think that was a narrative pushed out by some. But first off, concurrent jurisdiction is adding jurisdiction, exactly. not taking any way. Mm-hmm. And I've made it clear I didn't ask for it, I didn't advocate it, and I don't need it. Ironically, the areas where we would like some additional authority is not in the city of Philadelphia, but it's in places like Norristown mm-hmm. and Pottstown and Reading, areas that are racked by gun violence where we think we can help do more like we've done with the gun violence task force here as a model to be able to help deal with gun violence in those communities. But as for authority here in Philly, we've got plenty of authority. I don't need this authority. I didn't ask for it. Uh, And I don't plan to act unilaterally around the district attorney uh, with this authority. And if the legislature moves to repeal it, I would certainly support that repeal. It's, It's really not necessary. Now, you and Larry seem to work well. You seem to work well together on certain things. Look, I I work well with everybody. You know, I'm in a job right now as chief law enforcement officer of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania where I have a responsibility for people's Mm -hmm. public safety. I have a responsibility to deal with this opioid crisis. I have a responsibility to protect consumers. I have a responsibility to protect people's rights. And I am a firm believer that we've got to work together with people to get that done. I don't care what party you are. I don't care what region you're from. My job is to work with people to protect their interests, and that's the job we do here in the Office of Attorney General. And I think I've been around long enough to, you know, that the people know me, Sherry. They know I like to work with people. They yeah. know that I'm a consensus builder, and they know that I'm someone uh, who can work with anyone to, to deal with the problems that we were put here to deal with, and that is people's public safety. Now, there's a chunk of money that came with that, a mm-hmm. couple million dollars plus. Any ideas on how that's going to be used um, to help tackle this issue of gun violence? Well, we have uh, a program in place. Basically, the way it works is uh, my office hires agents to work undercover in the city of Philadelphia to deal with straw purchases, for example, to deal with these crime guns in our city. And then some of the money goes to the district attorney's office to hire prosecutors to then prosecute these cases. It really is a, a collaborative effort. And so we'll look forward to working with the district attorney's office as we've done as this office and their offices have done for more than a decade since this has been in place to work together to you know make sure those funds are used appropriately to keep people safe. The other focus, because I, I had to focus on this gun issue, but, but drugs too. There have been uh, specifically the opioid epidemic. There's been a, a huge focus from your office on this issue. Th- as this well. is my top priority, and mm-hmm. I believe it is the top public safety and public health priority in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and that is dealing with the heroin, fentanyl, and opioid crisis, which claims the lives of 12 Pennsylvanians every single day, including more than a 1,000 people here in the city of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit of a different law enforcement official on this, um, and certainly different from any of my predecessors. I take, a, I think, a more progressive view of this. Mm -hmm. I think we need to uh, understand that drug addiction is a disease not a crime. Yeah. And I think we also have to understand that it requires a multidisciplinary approach to deal with this. So yes, it requires the serious drug bust that we make, including the one we made just a couple of weeks ago uh, in Kensington, where we, we took down a major drug mm-hmm. network that was fueling that area uh, with these poisons. It also requires us to hold doctors accountable who yes. are running these pill mills. And so that's those arrests where you arrest a doctor, nurse, someone like that, those arrests are called diversion arrests. Our diversion arrests in the Office of Attorney General are up more than 50% since I took office, 5 zero, 50%. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, you got to hold pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. accountable. Now, some people will say, Sherry, why the pharmaceutical companies? What do they have to do with the heroin fentanyl uh, crisis? Well, Four out of every five heroin and fentanyl users starts with a legal prescription drug like an Oxycontin. In fact, by the way, Oxycontin, the chemical makeup of Oxycontin, it's the same as heroin. And so when these pharmaceutical companies turned a blind eye to the addictive nature of these 
products of these pills that they were pushing out there across Pennsylvania, they need to be held accountable. So that's why we sued Purdue Pharmaceutical. Mm-hmm. That's why we're leading a multi-state investigation of these pharmaceutical companies. We're going to hold them accountable for their crisis. In addition to that, you got to make sure insurance companies um, are involved. And I've worked with Independence Blue Cross and yep. other insurance companies mm-hmm. to ensure that they were making it easier for people to get treatment and harder for docs to write a 60-day prescription of OxyContin or Percocet after you had a tooth pulled, for example. They've been willing to work with us on that. I think that's important. And the final component of this is engaging the public. Remember I said before, four out of every five heroin users starts with a legal prescription drug? 70% of them get it from a friend or a relative's medicine cabinet. So when you've got all these extra drugs laying around in a medicine cabinet, what we really need to do is get those out of the medicine cabinets. We stop people from getting addicted in the first place. And working with the community during my tenure, we have been able to destroy 50 tons of prescription drugs that could have fallen into the wrong hands. I have to tell you, a pill doesn't weigh a whole lot. So 50 tons of those pills is a lot of pills and it's stopping people from getting getting uh, you know getting addicted so it's it's dealers yeah. on the street corners it's doctors in their offices it's the pharmaceutical companies it's working with the public to engage and then the final final piece of this is the public health side stepping up and making sure that there's treatment available now as a chief law enforcement officer i am not a public health expert but i know enough to know that a lot of these people we see they don't need to be behind bars they need to be in treatment and so working with our public health community we're helping get these people the treatment that they need so i want to switch gears a little bit a lot of high profile stuff how are you handling it <laughs> how do you feel like it's it's a lot going on you know i i am in this business of public service, largely because uh, scripture teaches us that no one's required to complete the task, but neither are we free to refrain from it. And I've lived those words that, you know, basically we all have a responsibility to get off the sidelines, get in the game and do our part. This is my part. And I'm so honored to serve as Pennsylvania's attorney general. And I know that with this position comes great authority to do good, battling the the heroin and opioid crisis, dealing with crime guns in our communities. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm given certain authority by the people of Pennsylvania to go out and fight these fights on their behalf. And that's exactly what I try and do every single day, to do this job with integrity, to focus on justice, and to focus on good outcomes and safe communities for the people of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. If you were to say just quickly, like, what keeps you awake at night or wakes you up? A lot wakes me up at night. I hate Mm -hmm. to admit that. You know, since I've had this job, I haven't slept through the night too many times all the way through. I think about the mom uh, that I met in Johnstown who haunts me because she had to bury her son from, you know, a heroin overdose. Mm -hmm. He was a good kid who got hooked on painkillers. I think about her a lot. I think about another mom I met in Kensington who was petrified to leave her home and walk down the street with her kid because of gun violence in her communities and because her kid had to step over needles uh, there that, yeah. that you know drug users were using. I think a lot about these moms. I think a lot about the senior citizens who are getting scammed all the time, too. We didn't talk a lot about that here today, but the, the number of financial crimes and financial scams are, are really serious. And then the last thing that keeps me up at night is um, now's a, a moment in time in our country where a lot of people feel like the progress we've made on civil rights, the progress we've made yeah. on environmental protection, and the progress that we've made to expand people's rights are being undermined and are being mm-hmm. threatened every day. Sometimes they're being threatened by the occupant of the White House. Sometimes they're being threatened by a big corporation. And so I'm constantly thinking about how I can put people before these powerful institutions and how we can fight to protect the progress we made and make even more progress. So these are the things I think about at 2, 3, 4 in the morning when I'm lying awake. I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm honored to do this yeah. job, and I'm, I'm grateful that the, the people of Pennsylvania saw to it to give me this awesome responsibility. And I'm going to continue to fight like hell every single day to protect their interests and their rights and to do this serious work that we do in the Office of Attorney General. As we wrap this up, one one thing would you say, if this is done, I would say I did a good job. Someone said to me uh, last August 14th when we released the clergy abuse report and were able to expose that there were 301 predator priests in Pennsylvania, thousands of child victims and conspiracy and cover-up that stretch all the way to the Vatican. Someone said, you know, if you retired right now, you would have accomplished a great deal for these survivors by giving them their life back and by sharing their truth. I appreciate that feedback. And and by the way, I have to say every single day since August 14th, 2018, someone has come over to me and told me their story of abuse, whether at the hand of a priest or someone else. And so I'm honored that people want to share that truth, that very private truth with 
with me. That was a great accomplishment for this office. But we got a lot more to do. And we've got a lot of work that has still been entrusted to us. And I intend to continue to do this job for as long as people of Pennsylvania let me. I hope it's going to be a, a lot longer so that I can continue to fight for them to deal with the gun violence epidemic, to deal with this opioid crisis, to deal with um, protecting people's rights. That's the work I want to continue to do, and I'm, I'm honored to do it, and we got a lot left to do. So no one thing, but many things. So Attorney General Josh Shapiro, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thanks, Sherry. Great to be with you. Next up, they now have a home to provide nurturing care to cancer patients and their families. They're coming to have a good time, to be stress-free, and to be in a place of normalcy. The Philadelphia man behind this effort and how he's making history. We'll be right back. When there's no closure to the mystery and the sorrow, Gone Cold is KYW News Radio's true crime podcast about unsolved cases in the Philadelphia area. Someone has to know. What happened? And who did this? We searched the wooded area. We searched dumpsters. Someone's life ended tonight. It's the most important thing you can investigate as a police officer. Who has the clue that unlocks the truth? Search for Gone Cold KYW in the Radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app. Apple Podcast app or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now we here at KYW, we are all about community and one couple is changing the game when it comes to helping others. They recently opened a cancer support center which offers emotional, financial and mental support before, during and after treatment. And guess what? They're possibly the only black owned cancer support center in the whole country. Here to tell us more about the Cancer Who Care Center is founder Al Harris. Al, welcome back to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for folks who don't know, Al was a 2018 KYW News Radio Game Changer of Black History Month. So welcome back. Oh, thank you. Thank so first up, congratulations on your cancer center. This is a really big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal for us just in the sense of that um, it's always been a dream for us and for our culture. So for us to come out and be like, I want to say one of the only black care centers in the country, like this, this is major. I've not heard any others, and I think it's amazing. So for those people who don't know what Cancer Who does, and y'all should explain. <laughs> well, Cancer Who is a 501c3 nonprofit that helps take care of people with cancer. So we go to chemo visits, radiation visits, doctor's visits, and we are like the extended family to the person and the family that's going through cancer. And so why a center? We support families from all over, so from Philly to California. And we were having our annual event every year. And what was happening was they were only connecting during that annual event. So I was I was telling my wife, like, yeah, we got to do this center because all these people, they can come and they can meet with their Philly family or they can meet with their Baltimore families and they can talk, but also get a support group in with people that look like them, but not just for people that's, that has cancer, but the caretakers as well. So people come there because you have events there. You have support group space. Well, yeah, all the programs are free. So that's one of the things I'm proud of. Like, you don't have to pay for nothing. To me, they're unique. Like right now, we have a yoga program that's just made for women that's going through cancer. We have a family night where on one end, the adults might be doing family feud and the kids might be playing on the other end. Um, I know a lot of the centers, they try to, distance the two either you're going to a center where only adults are being supported or it's only for the kids our center is for everyone just families in general so they can come together at one and why is this type of support so needed I, I hear a lot of people talk about mental health people that's going through cancer they go through so much day to day so a center like this can help them come and decompress from what they're going through you're not really coming to literally just talk about cancer and, and how and what it does to you on a day-to-day basis. You're coming to have a good time, to be stress-free, and to be in a place of normalcy. People that's in there, they know what you're going through because they're going through the same thing. But also your family, the caretakers, they're coming in there as well. Yeah. And let's talk about you because you had cancer close to you and then just said this was what you're supposed to do for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. uh I want to say about like 10 years ago, I had three members in my family that was going through cancer. My um, older cousin had stage four breast cancer. My younger cousin had brain cancer. And my wife's stepfather had colon cancer, like all at the same time. 
and my wife's stepfather, when he passed away, we think it would have been better if he could have had somebody here or had like an ambassador or something like that. And I just was like, well, you know something? I can't find nobody that's out here doing it in the organization. So why don't we just start one? And it just grew like throughout the years. Now I think it was three years ago. One day I just was like, this is what I need to be doing. This is my passion. This is what I like love to do. So I left my job. And from then on, we've been, we supported over like 250 families. Wow. Um, it's a blessing. And I wouldn't say this is something that I like set out to do, but something that I'm supposed to be doing. And it's amazing. And so what's the vision for the center and for Cancer Who? For it to not stop here. I mean, cancer is not just in Philly, so we should have a center like this in every other state. I know one of the struggles of people that's going through cancer is financial, just because the minute you get cancer, you have to stop working, even with your caretakers. They got to take off work and stuff like that. So financially, it hurts. Mentally, it definitely hurts. I want to help take off that mental stress first, but then also I want to help take off that financial burden too. So that's why everything with Cancer Who is free. So you just need to be stress-free and financial-free. Yeah. How, how can people support you and how do you support all of these free events? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's been, um, I mean, before I left my job, I was self-funded. In the past few years, we have been privileged to have um, some donors help out. We also, we love when people donate. Our, our Instagram, everything across the platform form for our social media is just Cancer Who. You can go to our website, cancerwho.org. The more they donate, the more people we can take care of. The more they donate, the more programs we can create inside the center. We can, we can do more if they donate more. And so last question for you, what drives you to, to continue to push Cancer Who and to grow it in this way? I swear the best part of my day is waking up. I'm really, like, geared to just do Cancer Who work. And when I go into the hospitals and see these people smiling, we're sitting in chemo sessions for four or five hours. And we ain't talk nothing about cancer. That, like, brings joy to my heart to just know that we're, we're actually helping. We're making, like, a positive outcome. Makes me just want to get up and do more, um, even with the kids. The kids don't really understand what they're going through as far as, like, cancer. But just seeing us come through to the chemos or to, like, their birthday parties and stuff like that, and, and they're excited to see us, that stuff like that just drives me, like, it's just love. Like, I just, I just love what I do. Yeah. I just want to say they also have some really cool swag uh, that you can purchase, right? Oh, well, That's yeah. A big no. Thing. Like, we literally do have a clothing line, like a full-fledged clothing line. So, yeah, I mean, you can find that all on the website, too. If you come to the website, 100% of the clothing line, all that stuff goes towards everything inside the center. Wonderful. So, check out org. So, to you, Al Harris, congratulations on the new Cancer Who Care Center. And uh, keep pushing. No, thank you. I appreciate you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. To quote an old Arabian proverb, he who has health has hope. And he who has hope has everything. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.